You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. Okay, I'm going to welcome everyone back to their seats. Thanks for greeting one another. If you didn't get coffee or pastries, feel free to grab those. On your way back, go ahead and open in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 21 is where we are today, Ephesians 5, 15 through 21. If you're using one of those hardback black Bibles in the back, feel free to grab that. If you don't own a Bible, take that home with you. That's our gift to you. We want you to have a copy of God's Word in your hands and available to you. You're on page 978 in those hardback black Bibles. We are continuing in our series today that we've called Foundations of Faith from death to life in the book of Ephesians. And throughout the book of Ephesians, we've been wanting to do just that, to build a foundation of faith together. As a new replanted church, uh, we want this strong foundation to build a vibrant community of faith, and Ephesians is a great place for us to start. So we've been walking through it over the last couple of months. And throughout the series, we've laid these foundation stones of identity in Christ and understanding this mystery that God has revealed, that it is possible to go from death to life through faith in Jesus. And now here in the latter half of Ephesians, uh, Paul, the author, is telling us about how we walk faithfully in this life. How do we live this life in light of our identity? And so last week we talked about being light in the world, and this week we are going to see what it means to live a life of meaning and purpose and wisdom in this world. And so if you have God's Word open to Ephesians 5, go ahead and stand with me as I read God's Word. You can follow along, and I will read for us. Beginning in verse 15, this is the word of the Lord, and it says, Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit." Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father and the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and grab a seat and I'll pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. Each week we open it and what a gift it is to us as your people. We think that in it we find wisdom and understanding and how to walk faithfully in this world. And today, would you help us? God, we know that the wisdom of the world will fade. We know that everything in this world withers and fades eventually, but your word will stand forever. And so we ask for your help. God, by the power of your spirit, would you open our eyes that we would behold the wondrous things found here in your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. According to an analysis by the New York Times in 2018, only 25% of Americans said that they had a clear sense of what makes their lives meaningful. Here we believe that God has created us for meaning and purpose, and study after study shows that when we have a clear sense of purpose and meaning, it's actually good for our health physically and emotionally. And if we were created to live with purpose, and if it's good for us, and yet so many people lack a clear sense of meaning and purpose in their lives, then that creates a problem for us. 
And I think it contributes to why study after study shows that Americans are becoming less and less happy each year. It's captured in some ways by Mark Twain, the great American novelist, when he wrote this in his autobiography. He said, a myriad of men are born, they labor and sweat and struggle for breath or for bread, they squabble and scold and fight, they scramble for little mean advantages over each other, age creeps upon them, infirmities follow, shames and humiliations bring down their prides and their vanities. Those they love are taken from them, and the joy of life is turned to aching grief. What a bleak picture to think of for life, right? There's got to be something more hopeful. But he goes on to say, the burden of pain, care, misery grows heavier year by year. He goes on then to say that eventually we are released from this world by death, only to be forgotten and replaced by other fools who repeat the same course with their lives, and on and on, none of us accomplishing anything. Perhaps you have felt this way in your life. Maybe you've felt this desire for meaning and purpose, and you feel the anxiety and the excitement that comes with what is ahead in your younger years. And then you maybe feel the disappointment or the frustration at what you have not yet accomplished in your middle years, wondering if your life has had meaning and value in your later years. And I believe that God has a story for his people that is more hopeful than the one that Mark Twain described. God wants us to be wise and understanding and purposeful in our lives. And so here's a summary of what we're going to say together in our sermon from this text. You can live with meaning and purpose, and it is measured by God's wisdom and not the world's. If we want to have meaning and purpose, then we need to know how God designed that to work and how it is measured. And so what we'll see is that there are three steps toward a meaningful life that God designed for us to live, and they are our outline today. The first is that we entrust ourselves to God's wisdom. Second, entrust yourself to God's presence. And third, entrust yourself to God's people. So first, entrust yourself to God's wisdom. Paul, the author here, opens in verse 15 with this phrase, look carefully then how you walk. This is the sixth time in this letter to the Ephesians that he uses this word walk to describe what it means now to follow Jesus in light of the faith we have in him. Almost all of them come in the latter part of the book, and Paul uses it often to say, this is what it means now to live in light of that identity that you have. He's about to tell us something about how we're meant to walk as followers of Jesus, and he does that by giving us several contrasts. So first and 15, he says, not as unwise, but as wise. Do not be foolish, but understand, he says in verse 17. Do not get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit, he says in verse 18. Throughout the book of Ephesians, one of the things you might have been observing so far is that Paul rarely gives a prohibition of something we should not do without giving its opposite prescription for how we are meant to live as followers of Jesus. And the first two contrasts here in our passage, they're saying very similar things. We're going to take them together And it's the first step toward this meaningful life, that we entrust ourselves to God's wisdom. Here's what it says in verse 16. Do not be unwise, but wise. And he explains that further. Making the the best use of the time, because the days are evil. The meaning of the phrase, best use of the time, is captured well in the way the NIV translates verse 16, where it says, making the most of every opportunity. Paul is talking about making the most of the time in which we live, to make the most of the season in which we live, 
to make the most use of the opportunity. This is different than making uh, every single minute of time used in the most efficient manner. That might be helpful, but this is not the theme verse or the anthem for all Christians who want to become passionate about productivity. When I was a new professional working in higher ed for my alma mater, I really got into this productivity movement. I wanted to understand how to be efficient with my time. And so I read books and I read blogs and I looked for tools and strategies to be effective. At one point, I realized I was spending so much time learning how to be productive that I was not actually being productive. <laughs> Along the way, I learned a few things and I hope, I, I hope that I'm more effective with my time now, but that's not what Paul is talking about in this passage. There's a massive difference between becoming efficient and productive at doing meaningless things and becoming intentional and purposeful with our lives. Paul is emphasizing the second. And the reason we need wisdom is because the days are evil, he says in verse 16. What Paul means by that is he's saying the days in which we live are going to undermine a purposeful and meaningful life. It happens through discouragement, it happens through distraction, it happens through the temptation to sin, it happens through feelings of meaninglessness when failures come and they will come. And here's what I know. Making the best use of your time is not measured in efficiency any more than it is accomplishments. It is not measured in how much knowledge you gain or how much approval you get. In 2005, Tom Brady, after winning his third Super Bowl, did an interview with 60 Minutes and he said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? Some might say he had all there is in life. I mean, he had reached the pinnacle, but he said, there's got to be more to life than this. This cannot be all there is. Now, he went on to win four more Super Bowls, but if three Super Bowls didn't do it for him, seven Super Bowls isn't going to do it either. And if seven Super Bowls isn't enough for Tom Brady, then any accomplishment we achieve is not going to be enough either. Now, they might contribute to a meaningful life, but when we ask something to do something that, or when we ask something that is not God to do something that only God can do, it will lead to a wasted life, a foolish life, unwise, as Paul says. In the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, there's a book entirely dedicated to this basic question of a meaningful life. It's called the book of Ecclesiastes. And in that book, the teacher set out to find what makes for a meaningful life. He wanted to know what matters. And so he sought meaning and knowledge and wealth and power and in love. And in the end, he concluded that all was meaningless and perplexing. He observed all that he could about life and found that it didn't always make sense. In the end, the author of Ecclesiastes concludes that life is meaningful when, in two things, we fear God and keep his commandments. A meaningful life comes from entrusting ourselves to God's wisdom. And Paul is saying something like that in verse 17. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Here is how you live a meaningful life. Let God define what matters. Here at River City, we believe that a meaningful life cannot be lived by our own definitions. The, the message of the world around us is going to say, you define what matters. You define what meaning is. But it is not discovered inside of us, but it comes from someone outside of us. And so we will find meaning in life when we let God define it for us. And that means we take God's word seriously, which is why we open it each week. We will seek to value what God values. 
We will live with intentionality. We will work hard. We will seek to be industrious in all things. We will hold the things that we have loosely and not seek to control everything. And along the way, we will entrust ourselves to God's will and his wisdom. The second step to living a life of meaning is to entrust yourself to God's presence. Paul gives us another set of contrasting instructions in verse 18 when he says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Let me parse this out for us a little bit. First, Paul tells them not to get drunk with wine. And contrary to the whiskey billboard that I once saw that said, the Bible says not to get drunk on wine, but it never said anything about whiskey. (laughs) It's not what Paul is saying here, okay? This is not a warning about wine, but about drunkenness. Now, the Bible never commands complete abstinence from substances, but like today, drunkenness was a problem in first century Ephesus. As it has been in every century, among every culture, since organics were first fermented into alcohol. Here is the reality with every substance we use, especially those that lead to intoxication. The consistent and excessive use of alcohol leads to a wasteful loss of control. That's what Paul means by debauchery, wasteful loss of control. It's hard to capture the word of, in Greek and English well, so we translate with the word debauchery, because it does mean both a lack of self-control, which is captured well in that word debauchery, excessive indulgence is kind of what we define debauchery as, but it also means wastefulness. So the word Paul uses means both excessive, lack of self-control, and wastefulness. Loss of self-control is part of the problem. When we give give ourselves habitually to alcohol, we lose the ability to control our impulses, in the moment, if we've had enough alcohol, and also over time, if we become addicted to the need to drink each day to ease the anxieties of that day. And there's another subtle meaning, though, as I've said. It also leads to wastefulness in finances, in time, in energy, and in purpose. And Paul just got done telling the Ephesians, make the most of the time. Make the most of the opportunity. Don't waste it. And when we give ourselves over and over again to a substance, we waste the opportunity to live a life of purpose. And Paul contrasts the prohibition then with a command, be filled with the Spirit. And we might think that's an odd combination. How do these two go together? Why is being drunk on wine the opposite of being filled with the Spirit? Well, first, because when we are filled with the Spirit, we don't lose control or we don't lose control like we do to wine, but we yield control and influence to God in our lives. Part of being filled with the Spirit is a conscious decision to submit ourselves to God's influence upon us. And one way that this can happen, this is just a simple prayer that God's people have prayed throughout the centuries. I'm going to offer it to you. It's just three words. Come Holy Spirit. Now, I know that we're a Baptist church and we don't like to talk about the Holy Spirit too much around here, But the Holy Spirit is God. We want his presence and his influence in our lives. And you might ask, why do we need to ask the Spirit to come? I mean, God doesn't need our permission. Certainly not. He doesn't. That's true. And God is everywhere all the time. Yes, also true. But Paul gives instruction here to be filled with the Spirit. That's different than being sealed with the Spirit. This filling that Paul's talking about is not a one-time event. It is continual. It is ongoing. It is a conscious yielding of our lives to the influence and the power of God's Spirit. And this sort of prayer 
the, the words just come Holy Spirit. In words, we are praying what we want to be true of us in our heart. We want a life of purpose. We want a life submitted to God's will. So let me just give you a really simple application today. Sometime this week, when you reach a point in your life, when you feel frustrated, when you feel out of control, when you feel angsty, which again, this happens, right? We feel this for any number of reasons. When you feel like a failure or when you feel like your life doesn't have purpose, just stop. Calm your heart, quiet your spirit, and just pray these three words. Come Holy Spirit. Yield your life to him. Let him define what meaning and purpose is for you. And here's the deal. This isn't like some cheat code. It's not going to be some lightning bolt from heaven. Your emotions may not change immediately, but I promise you, God wants to fill you. God wants to empower you. He wants your life to have meaning and value. And you can trust that he will do so in his own timing and in his own way. And this brings us to this second reason why we want to be filled with the Spirit and why it contrasts drunkenness, because the Spirit helps us not to waste our lives, but to live with wisdom and with purpose. One of the reasons that people often drink is a habitual, or in a habitual and excessive way, the sort of way that Paul is warning against, is to drink away our sorrows, to chase away our fears, to soothe our anxieties. One commentator said of this passage that there's an implication for Christians here, and that is that the Christian knows a better way than wine of being lifted above the depression and the joyless monotony of life, a better way of removing self-consciousness and quickening thought and word and action than by the use of intoxicants. It is by being filled with the Spirit. Whenever we turn to something other than God to be our ultimate comfort, and counselor in pain, then we are setting ourselves up with an idol that will never satisfy. It will prove to be fruitless and foolish, and in the end, as Paul says here, wasteful. God has greater joy available for you than the temporary relief of a substance. And here's what I know. Addiction to alcohol can hide among us, I met with someone recently whose life was almost completely ruined by alcohol. He was a young man, and you wouldn't have known it if you met him at the time. After multiple DUIs and the unraveling of his life, he repented one day over his lunch break. In tears and in pain, he entrusted himself to the Lord. And if you met him before that day, he could have walked in here, said all the right things, hidden among the crowd, and convinced us that his life was yielded to God's Spirit. And as he walked in the darkness of an addiction to alcohol, his pain continued to rise, and his opportunity was being wasted. And for you, it may not be alcohol, but maybe another substance is stealing your joy, stripping you of self-control and a life yielded to God's influence and purpose and presence. Or maybe it's not a substance at all, but maybe it's an addiction to something else, maybe to your phone or to pornography or any other number of things. You don't have to hide here. You don't have to live in the shame of that. God wants more for you. We want more for you. It is possible. There is hope. And if that's you, then I would love to talk with you afterward. I'd love to encourage you in the hope that there is in Jesus and the feeling of God's spirit. Now, we'll move to the third step in a meaningful life. 
Entrust yourself to God's people. The last half of our passage is all about the worshiping community. And there are three primary exhortations that Paul wants to give to his people. And they are these, to sing together, to give thanks together, and to submit to one another. If we want to be wise and live with meaning and purpose, then we must be in relationship with God's people. Now, one of the significant questions that theologians will kind of talk about when studying this passage is how verse 18 relates to verses 19 through 21. Do we do the singing and the thanksgiving and the mutual submission of verses 19 through 21 because we are filled with the Spirit in verse 18? Or do we do them in order to be filled with the Spirit? Is it a way of being filled? Or maybe neither, and they just come together simultaneously. Well, you could read three different commentaries and get three different answers, like I did this week. And so we should hold our opinion loosely in how we answer that. Okay, but as I studied it this week, the conclusion I came to is that it is in our participation in the worshiping community that God wants to fill us by his spirit. It is one of the ways that God fills us with his spirit. And here's why. The biggest reason I came to that conclusion is because of the imagery and the language that Paul uses for the temple and the connection to God's people, the church. Back in chapter 2, Paul says that together we are being built into a holy temple. And throughout the Old Testament, the most common way that God's presence came to dwell on earth was in the temple. Jesus came as the visible expression of the invisible God, and through his own death and his resurrection, he has given us the spirit to those who believe. And that happens for us as individuals. And the New Testament does call us as individuals a temple, but the more common expression of the new covenant temple is actually God's people together. It is it is the community of faith. We are, we are formed a new family. We have formed, uh, or as citizens of a new kingdom, we are being made into a holy temple. And so it makes sense that one of the ways that we are filled with the Spirit is through the regular community of God's people together. Now, we need to be careful at this point because this is not some formula for us to manipulate God's Spirit as if we can manipulate the process through cause and effect. We must learn the beauty of the gathered church for itself as a means of encouragement and life, not just as a means for something else, but we also must understand that it is through the worshiping community that God wants to fill us with his spirit and give us the intimacy of his presence. River City Church, what a special gift we've been given by God, that together, in one another, we can be filled by God's spirit. What a reminder of the need and the necessity to be a part of a worshiping body. Now let's look at these three instructions that Paul gives this local church. The first is to sing together. Singing together is not a modern phenomenon of the church. It is something God's people have done throughout the ages. And there's a record of hymns that the early church was writing and singing together. And here Paul lists psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And some make a big deal about trying to parse out the difference between each of those three and that, that can be helpful at times, but I think a more profitable way to reflect on this passage, the best thing we can do is just embrace the reality that singing is a gift from God. It is a healing balm for our souls. I have this vivid picture in my mind from when I was a young adult, newly married to Megan, and we were at church, and our pastor's wife was there singing on the first Sunday after she had just had a miscarriage. And at that time, I could not fully grasp the pain that she was feeling in that moment. But as I watched her sing through pain and through tears, as I watched her 
pursuing God, even in the pain, not even sure of God's goodness that day, I am sure, as she walked into that church building. But she continued to sing among God's people, and I watched as God's spirit was filling her, encouraging her, reminding her of the goodness of the gospel as I watched a life of meaning and purpose unfolding right before me. Singing together is a gift. There will be some days when you come and you don't feel like singing. For whatever reason, you don't feel like singing. When that happens, that's okay. Let the strength of the voice on your right and on your left be God's healing spirit to you, filling you, reminding you of the goodness of the gospel. What a privilege it is to sing together. We get to sing a couple more songs together before we leave. What a gift it is to us in response to the good news of the gospel. The second thing that Paul instructs them to do is to give thanks. In verse 20, he says, Give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Earlier in chapter 5, verse 4, he also told the church to give thanks. And at that time, he did so in contrast to crude joking and foolish talk. If the people of God have a dialect, let it be one of thanks. Last week, I spoke about the power of words, and I talked about a study in which people who were exposed to rude words actually acted more rudely as a result. And here we see an example of a way we can do that differently. People who are around gratitude and thankfulness will have increased gratitude and thankfulness in their hearts. Paul's vision for, is for a community of thanks. In verse 4 and in verse 20, those instructions for thanks are always in the context of relationships. It's about the shared community. Now, we can do that on our own. Thankfulness journals are really helpful for us as individuals, but the benefit grows exponentially when we are willing to be vulnerable and share that thankfulness with one another. And here's what I'd encourage you to do this week. I'd encourage you to have in mind, to, to be mindful about something you want to give thanks to God for, and then send that to somebody else. Communicate that to somebody else here at Riverside. Maybe send them a text. Give them a call. Maybe, you want, maybe you're thankful for them. Maybe you're thankful for something you see God doing in the world. Maybe you're thankful for something God's doing in you, but share that with others. What would it look like for us to cultivate a community and a culture of thanks here at River City? What sort of impact would that have on our lives and on our community if we started to share why we were thankful? How might that lead to lives of meaning and purpose? I would love to know that dozens and dozens of text messages are getting sent to one another this week, all throughout the city. And based on my reading of this text, based on that simple act of obedience, I believe that God will fill us with his spirit as he does so, and he will bring gospel renewal to our lives. The third instruction that Paul gives is to submit to one another. Next week, the entire sermon is going to be just on verse 21. And so I'm not going to spend a significant amount of time on it right now, but I want to say this. The kingdom of God is turning an upside-down world right side up. We live in a world where people often seek meaning and purpose in significance and in accomplishments and what they can get over someone else. But that is not the story of God. That is not the way of God. Our Savior came and said that greatness is found in serving. Significance and meaning happen when we submit our own desires, our own needs, our own plans and preferences to those of one another, to the people around us. We worship a God who came in the person of Jesus, and he told us he did not come to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. He found ultimate purpose by becoming weak, becoming a servant. That is where victory was found in his life. If you want a life of meaning and purpose, it begins with a life of shared submission to those around you. And if there is anywhere that this can happen, this should happen, this kind of mutual, life-giving, ongoing submission to one another, let it be here in the church. Let it be among God's people. I went to a funeral yesterday for some of our missionary partners whose daughter died recently. Uh, Megan was working, so I brought all four kids with me. And as I left, I had a couple of reflections. The first was, what was I thinking, bringing all four kids to a funeral? Who was I kidding, right? Now, I got to observe about a third of it, but even that third was massively impactful. And I have some reflections on that part, okay? Uh, And really, I left thinking about what brings real meaning in life. The funeral was for a young girl named Lauren who was 15 years old. She was born without oxygen and spent her entire life severely disabled. Now, based on our modern definitions of what brings meaning and purpose, someone might say, how could she have a life of meaning and purpose. She's never going to run a company. She's not going to write a book. Never going to win a Super Bowl. How could she have meaning and purpose? But as I watch testimony after testimony of the impact of this girl's life, it was absolutely evident to me that she had purpose in this world. As her mother shared about the day that she was born and said, as I looked forward All I could see was difficulty and challenge. But yesterday, on the day of her daughter's funeral, as I look back on the 15 years that I had with my daughter, all I see are blessings and gratitude. This little girl lived a life of purpose. Many people shared about her just devoted love to her family, her patience, her joy, the beauty of her smile. Now, she's not going to be written about in history books. She does not have any records in professional sports that we know of. No seven Super Bowls like Tom Brady. But Lauren found in this simple life that she lived with her family what so many people lack today, meaning and purpose. As she submitted herself to God's wisdom, God's will, and the welcome of God's people. You can live with meaning and purpose purpose. And it is measured by God's wisdom, not the world's. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.